Come live in the light, shine with the joy and the love of the Lord. We are called to be light for the kingdom, to live in the freedom of the city of God. We are called to act with justice. We are called to love tenderly. We are called to serve one another. To walk humbly with God. So, that is a song that David Haas wrote, inspired by Micah, the book of Micah. And I will be a very good Catholic sometimes throughout the next four weeks and say, somewhere in the book of Micah, there is a quote that says... (laughs) That we are called to walk uh, humbly with our God, to uh, be people of justice. And as we begin this next four weeks, I can't think of a more appropriate way to begin than to pause and to pray, to continue the song of our prayer that is in our hearts, whether we sing it with our voices or not. We sing it with our souls. And so, Lord God, we thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for the many ways that your call is manifest in our lives. We thank you for the very source of that call from your heart to ours that is sung in the scriptures, that is told and retold, that is foundational to who we are as people, who you are as our God, and who we are together. We ask that you would journey with us and walk with us. May your spirit continue to enliven us as we gather and as we reflect on and embrace the many ways that you call us as your people. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, my greatest conviction, one of my greatest convictions in life, is that each one of us is called by God. So just as that song so beautifully celebrates, we are called by God. And I have been working on these presentations probably all my life, which is 56 years. But I've been working on this presentation probably more seriously the last, oh, I'd say 30 to 35 years, as I have been a little more aware of God's call in my own life. And there are so many fonts and sources of inspiration for us about how God calls us. Movies, songs, poems, pieces of art. I don't know if you saw our... uh, Pieta when it was here and you just look at that piece of art and you think of how Michelangelo was inspired by this unbelievably sorrowful and yet dramatic scene from Christ's life. It's Mary holding her dead son and I can only imagine how that would speak to any of you who are mothers and any of you who are mothers who have lost a child. I can't begin to even imagine that. And yet, in this unbelievable piece of art, we get this conveying of a story. And behind that is the passion and the artistic talent of Michelangelo and his story. You know, I'm 
a big rock and roll fan, and so there's all kinds of beautiful examples of how people are urged to do something really significant with their lives through music and just the stories of musical artists and so many of them who recognize. I mean, one of my favorites is Billy Joel, a Jewish man who just took an interest in piano. And on his 12th birthday, his family forgot that it was his birthday. So in anger and frustration, he locked himself in his room and played his piano until his fingers bled. And Billy Joel said, at one point in time in my life, I realized that God had given me a talent. And I felt morally obligated to share that talent with the world. Now, he's made a lot of money. (laughs) But before he made all that money, he came to that realization. So those are the kind of things I'm talking about. And every one of us has our favorites. Stories, movies, whatever, art, that speak to us and inspire us in terms of how somebody... And it's, it's so much of it is a variation of the same thing. Somebody realized that they had a talent or a gift or a skill, and then they shared that talent and gift and skill with the world. But even in terms of rock and roll music and athletics, <laughs> which are two of my favorites, there is no greater source of inspiration about how God has called people than in the scriptures. And so my hope is through these next four weeks that we'll really do kind of three basic things. One, come to understand some of these call stories by our shared reflection on them. Number two, to help us to use those stories to give light to our own story, how God is calling us. And number three, um, three techniques that it'll be kind of hard for us to do here, but that I really want to begin to encourage you to use on a regular basis to pray with Scripture. Silence. And in praying with the Scriptures in silence to use contemplation, meditation, and consideration. Those are three little techniques. So those are the kind of things that I'd like to to focus on a little bit here. And the more I reflect on this, like I said, I've been working on this for a long, long time. I believe that in breaking this whole thing up into the Old Testament kind of story and the New Testament story, that those kind of with the broadest strokes, those two stories are perfect complements to each other to help us to embrace our call. Now, I don't know, uh, I know many of you, I don't know all of you, and I want to kind of give you a challenge or perhaps check an assumption. I've had a little difficulty in this since I've been here at Holy Family because sometimes when I get on my high horse and talk about this, people go, you know, Father, people who work in the church are called. I'm not called. (laughs) That could not be farther from the truth. Are people who work in the church called? Yes. But God's sense and the church does not limit Leadership in any endeavor does not limit who's called. God calls us all, every one of us, primarily through the sacrament of baptism, primarily through life itself, the gift of life that God has given to us. Every one of us has a story. It's richer than we think, much richer than we think. And God is calling each and every one of us. 
God has given each and every one of us unique gifts and skills and talents. They're all different. Everybody in this room is different. And God is encouraging us basically to do two things. To reflect on and to identify what are those things. And then secondly, how do I use those or express those to make the world a better place? Not just the church, the world. That's part of the challenge of the Second Vatican Council. To transform the world. Thinking about the church or religious institutions is much, much too narrow. It's the world. And so I know here in this room we represent many different walks of life. God is at work in each and every one of them. God is at work in each and every one of our lives in such a powerful way. And I really think that these scripture stories can help us to understand this and to embrace this. So let's start with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, as some of your questions, uh, I think, might have helped you to reflect on, the Old Testament has some really classic notions of call. Because it's really in the Old Testament that we first get this notion that God is calling people. So in the Old Testament, we get the story of creation, which we're going to talk about in a second a little bit more in depth. God creates, and God has created each and every one of us. We are extensions of that story of creation. God gives us life. And God's call for each one of us is unique. It's different. God gives us passion. Desire. And... Our passions and our desires are awakened, again, differently. Each one of us, part of that notion of how we are unique. Probably, you know, we have some classic examples in the Old Testament of call. So in the stories, what are some of the classic Old Testament stories of call? The classics. Noah. Noah. Very good. Who else? Jonah. Samuel. Absolutely. The Old Testament call, critical to the Old Testament call, is the notion of covenant. Our Jewish brothers and sisters were the first ones to recognize the one true God and to form a bond with that God, a relationship with that God. That relationship included many things. It included a sense of being chosen. Abraham. Abraham. And so when we look at the rootedness of this, and we see how critical to the Old Testament sense of call is this notion of covenant. It's a partnership. When I was in the seminary, I think some of you have heard me say this before, I had a professor, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been Father Jim McElhone. And he said the entire Old Testament can be summed up in one statement, and the entire New Testament can be summed up in one statement. The Old Testament statement is, I am your God, and you are my people. And the New Testament statement is, Jesus Christ is Lord, 
So when we begin to look at these stories, the Old Testament notion of I am your God and you are my people, God reaches out a hand to those people as they are journeying through the desert and says, I'm your God, you can't get rid of me. (laughs) I'm in this with you. I'm on this journey with you. Another significant part of the Old Testament notion of call is journey. Another way of summing it up is, a people were in bondage, they followed charismatic leaders to a better way of life. And there was prophecy and there was wisdom about all that. And so this Old Testament notion of call, journey is such an important part of it. Moses leading the people through the desert. And in the middle of that journey was idolatry. You know, Moses, we can't see this God you're talking about. So we're going to make our own God that we can see, touch, feel. And in the midst of what is marked as the covenant or the receiving of the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down with this beautiful expression of God's covenant. And here these people are worshiping something that they shouldn't have worshipped. And so that causes some anger for Moses. The notion of the Old Testament call significant to it is promise. God said, in that covenant, you will be my people. And so often, it was with Noah, it was with Abraham, That promise involved progeny. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. Progeny. Descendants. That was so important and continues to be for the Jewish people. The notion of being descendants of our father in faith, Abraham. Laying such a powerful foundation for Christian people. How about the New Testament? What are the hallmarks of the New Testament notion of call? First thing is the incarnation. So something about this promise, something about this covenant becomes real. That's the source of our sacramental life. Every sacrament with a capital S is whittled down to a moment. The moment that two people are married is when they stand there face to face in public, in the context of prayer. And they say, I take you to be my wife. I promise to be true to you. In good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. Very powerful words. That's the moment. So... It becomes real. And that is an extension of Jesus Christ coming into this world and being born just like you and I. Something became real. God became real in the form of Jesus Christ. It's sacramental. It's Eucharistic, primarily. And so why is it such a big deal that we focus on that bread and wine? Evidently, Jesus intended for us to do that, to focus on the reality of his presence in our world, in our lives. It's real. Something about God becomes real. 
It is, in the New Testament, a sense of fulfillment. I want to stop here because this is a really important notion for me. This fulfillment thing. So our belief is that somehow in the presence of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God becoming real and sanctifying, making sacramental all life and giving us a way to continually come in touch with that, that there is a notion that the covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It becomes real. That might be offensive to some Jewish people. Wait, we felt the covenant was real a long time ago. And I can understand I can certainly understand that. And that all is part of this, just the mystery of how God works in our lives. But for us as Christians, we believe that in this notion of fulfillment, it is about Jesus Christ fulfilling that covenant, all the things that the prophets said. And the important thing that I want to say is, and this begins to get us back to the whole notion of call and our call. I know I've said it, I bet everybody in this room has said it. I've heard people say it. I just want to be happy. Nothing wrong with that, is there? I want to be happy in life. And most of the time, when do you say, I want to be happy? When you're not happy, right? I just want to be happy. Great. This notion of fulfillment, and I hope some of the light that is shed from the heroic stories that we're going to reflect on, give us a wisdom that says, chasing happiness is not the deepest way to go. I believe that happiness is a byproduct. Happiness comes as a result of doing something really meaningful. Here's the best example consistently in my life. So I'm talking to my friends who are not priests, and they say, hey, want to go to have uh, breakfast tomorrow? No, I can't. i got a funeral. Oh, God. Oh, man. I'm really sorry. But I guess you do that a lot. You're a priest. Yeah, yeah, I do. That's, that's part of it. <laughs> On the surface, is a funeral a happy occasion? No, not usually. But I have to tell you, consistently, grieving families, and we've had a whole lot of it recently. <laughs> I like, I've had death up to here. I, you know, in the last 12 days of my life, both here at Holy Family and other people in my life have died. And they've asked me to do funerals. I, I'm just like, I had a funeral Monday, had a funeral yesterday. I'm like, oh, good. I get to do Bible journey. No funeral. <laughs> so in a sense, I'm contradicting myself by saying this. <laughs> Consistently, people demonstrate to me that they believe in the resurrection. The most important thing that we believe as Christian people. A funeral happens in three or four days. People take time out and they make it a priority to visit and talk to people who are grieving. To gather in prayer and to reflect on the most important thing that we believe, the resurrection. And by their very nature, people demonstrate that they believe in that. That's not happy, but it's meaningful. And consistently, I draw more strength and more hope at funerals than just about any other moment. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So a lot of these call stories, both Old Testament and New Testament, are not necessarily about people wanting to be happy. It's about people who've struggled and, and done a lot of stuff, but spent a lot of extended time reflecting on what it is that God is calling them to do and then having the courage to actually respond to do that. And the most unhappy are the ones who say, I just don't think I can do that. <laughs> Ultimately, in the long term, and so courage is such an important part of this. But in our New Testament, it calls us also, this notion of fulfillment brings us to the eternal. 
<coughs> now, there are so many elements that connect these two. So, as we begin to kind of look and do further reflection, um, we'll begin to kind of make some of those connections. But I kind of want to turn now to what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that is some of these questions that you've already reflected on. But I'd like to go through, let's just start at the beginning. That's a good place to start, isn't it? <laughs> Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. I just want you to open up your Bibles. What time is it? Okay. So again, as, as um, I'm sure you've reflected on before, there are not, it's not one, there are two stories of creation. And this begins to give us an example of how I will certainly use these scriptures. And one of the ways to, to look at scripture. There are so many. But when we look at this story of creation, this first story of creation, first of all, it's just absolutely fascinating. I'm sure many of you have noticed this before, but what are the very first words? In the beginning. Can somebody please go to the prologue of the Gospel of John right now? And how does that start? In the beginning. So, John was certainly not the first book written in the New Testament, but John purposely makes a statement in deference to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you already went through and um, you know answered some of these questions or or reflected on some of these questions, where am I? Uh, here. We. Um, we get this image in the Old Testament, in the story of creation and throughout. What's the primary image of God in this story, do you think? God creates, obviously. What is God doing in the story of creation? Actually, both of the stories. What is God doing? What's that? Making things. What's another way of referring to that? Work. The image is that God is a worker. Should have given me more space in between. That's one of the significant things that connects the two Old Testament and New Testament stories. God works. God creates something from nothing. Then, after God creates, what does God do? Before he rests. Yeah, what's another word for that? God reflects. And there's this beautiful pattern of work and reflection. And we kind of have a fancy church word for that. Anybody know what that is? Discernment. (laughs) Not all reflection is discernment, but when it comes to our call, it's a way for us to discern how God is calling us. So much of it has to do with our work. And by work, I don't mean our nine-to-five job or our career. The work that we put in, in prayer, the work that we put in, volunteering, the work that we put in, raising our kids, the work that we do in life. God is a worker, and in all of these endeavors in our lives, we co-create with God when we work. 
in the broadest sense of the term, work. So, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, right? And we get all this beautiful imagery. The earth was a formless wasteland. Darkness covered the abyss while the mighty wind swept over the waters. Then God said, hey, let's there, let there be light. So God makes light and then steps back and goes, ha, made light today. That's pretty good, right? And so we see this pattern that God works and reflects. And that helps us. It's a pattern for us in our own lives. Here's another example of what I'm talking about. Lou Holtz is a football coach, and he's now an analyst for ESPN. Lou Holtz got fired as the uh, head coach of the New York Jets. And he took a job as the head coach at University of Minnesota. And in between those two things, he was sitting down, reflecting, and he wrote a hundred things that he needs to do in his life. And he shows it to his wife. And she looks at the list, and she goes, Honey, that's great, but I'm going to add another one. And he goes, Wow, great, honey, what's that? She goes, You need a job. <laughs> So sometimes in the midst of our, of our notion of this call and reflection, this some pretty simple stuff. Our work is so important to us. And again, not just our job, the work that we put in. How it is that we focus our days and our nights and our hands. And so we get this beautiful image of God working and reflecting in this first story of creation. And then at the end, God creates human life. And what does God say then? It's very good. <laughs> so we get this little qualifier in there. Not only is this good, this is very good. And then God takes an extent, gives us the pattern, an extended period of reflection. On the seventh day, God rested and really affirmed and enjoyed all that God had created. Those are very, very significant patterns. The second story of creation is a little bit different. God creates humanity first and then tries to find a partner for humanity, for, for, for man. Then the other image in the second uh, story of Genesis is that not only is God a worker, but God rolls up their sleeves and gets into this in, in this mud and creates this human life and breathes life into it. It's a very earthy image of God. And then that kind of gets us rolling on the whole notion of creation that is so important for us. And then we move on and we recognize some of these classic stories like of Noah. It's very interesting as I was kind of preparing and, and reviewing this. I hadn't read the story of Noah in a while. But let's take a second to, to, to go to Genesis 6, 5 to 8. When the Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on earth and how no desire that his heart conceived was ever anything but evil, he regretted that he had made man on the earth and his heart was grieved. I'll wipe out from the earth the men who I have created. So in the beauty of this creation, this notion of evil causes God to reconsider the whole thing. But Noah found favor with the Lord. It says in verse 8. Like almost out of nowhere, isn't it? It doesn't say that Noah did anything good, does it? It doesn't say that Noah did all this stuff and that's why God found favor with him. Just all of a sudden, you know, like a, I don't know, some really surprising thing. But God found favor with Noah. So in the midst of all of this, God is ready to reject the whole thing. He finds favor with one person. 
And so through that, Noah kind of makes this, these preparations. But Noah goes through a lot of discernment, doesn't he? <laughs> a lot of discernment, actually. And Noah is given a mission, isn't he? He's given a purpose. God's really specific. Hey, I want you to save all these animals. That's, that's all part of it. And the other thing that he does is he promises Noah progeny and descendants, doesn't he? It's going to go beyond you, Noah, and I'm going to give you life, and I'm going to extend the life of your family as you know it. But a lot of that causes conflict, and there's resistance from his neighbors, right? Noah goes through some struggles, correct? That sound like your life? <laughs> Sounds a whole lot like mine. In the dignity of our work, and even in the, the challenge of reflecting, these are things that connect the New and the Old Testament. Through it all, God gives us a mission. And there is conflict and resistance and struggle sometimes to that mission or that purpose that we have in life. Noah is a perfect example of it. A perfect example. There's also other ways that we can use some of the imagery of the Old Testament. And one is actually a pretty negative thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way or not, but looking at Cain and Abel, and maybe some of the questions that you uh, asked or shared in reflecting on the, re- the questions that I gave, Cain represents this person who tills the earth. Abel represents somebody who tends the flocks. If you read the story again, it just out of nowhere, God found favor with Abel, but not with Cain. Why? We're probably never going to get an answer to that question, are we? It's just the way it was. So with two of these stories out of nowhere, God finds favor with these people. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, who we identify with (laughs) makes all the difference in the world. But one way of looking at it is to put that aside and just say, okay, how does the image of the scriptures speak to us? And so that's an example of what I'm talking about, to use these stories to help us to discern our own call. And so that's why I put those questions on there. Just a different way of looking at things. Are you somebody who tills the earth or are you somebody who tends the flocks? It's a simple image. Sometimes my look at the image goes, I have no idea what that's what you're talking about. So I'm going to go to the next image. <laughs> that's okay too, because not all these images are going to strike us. For, for all of us, this image of God as a worker is not necessarily going to help. But in this New Testament notion of incarnation and what's real and what's present... <clears throat> The sacramental of life, particularly the Eucharistic, this notion of fulfillment and things that are eternal, lasting, meaningful. I had kind of a peak experience with this when I was in the seminary. It's kind of this interesting community of people. Guys walking around going, wow, does God want me to be a priest? Am I supposed to be a priest? And starting asking each other, do you think God wants me to be a priest? God want me to be a priest? All this prayer, you know, all these people, you know, helping you to study scripture and formation and these programs in the seminary and you're doing all this stuff and you're trying to get an idea, does God want me to be, am I supposed to be a priest? And there was a fair amount of, I just want to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I remember when it kind of came to me, 
I think it was my third year in the seminary. This guy's looking at me going, oh, I don't, does God want me to be a priest? I looked at him and he said, God doesn't care whether you're a priest or not. The guy looks at me and he goes, what are you talking about? I said, God doesn't care whether you become a priest. God has given you gifts and skills and talents. And God wants you to use those in the best possible way to make our world a better place. And if that's as a priest, great. If it's not as a priest, then there's something else. I was talking more to myself than I was him, probably. <laughs> He's like, oh, thanks, Mr. Compassion. <laughs> <laughs> but I really believe that. So sometimes in the mystery of this, at times when God finds favor with us, it comes out of like nowhere. And sometimes as a result of conflicts and resistance and struggles in our lives, we, we really have to work on this. But these things in red, I think, bridge these two notions. And why is this so important? Um, there's a couple more examples that we may not get into all the details, but uh, Abraham is certainly one of them, and I've got some questions you know, revolving, uh, involving Abraham for next time, and Moses, uh, and Samuel, and David. And <laughs> I really... Think I won't have as prolonged a period of this introduction. I wish I could have kind of done this introduction before we. I asked you all those questions. So next time when we gather, we're going to probably just kind of be more specific about some of the scripture quotes. But I really took this as an example, and, and knowing that most of you are women, there are three great Old Testament stories: Judith, Esther, and Ruth. And I would really encourage you to dump yourself into looking at those stories. Um, they're powerful women. They're wonderful stories, and I can just imagine, you know, uh, yeah, in your in your studies and in your contemplations, if you have at all kind of uh, scoured those stories. But they're they're absolutely uh, powerful. And again, just in preparation for this, just reading those again, I thought, wow, this is, this is going to be good for our reflection. But. Um, I want to, I'm going to pass this out. Do we have our handout? Do we pass our handout? Okay, good, good. Everybody's got a handout? Um, I want to close with just a couple of things. And I, I really, I want to encourage you to use these techniques. Um, one of the most fruitful experiences of my life was a 36-day silent directed retreat in 1993, the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola at the El Retiro Retreat House in Los Altos, California. Taking 36 days primarily of silence to reflect on your life and the scriptures is just magnificent. And I don't know how much silence you've used I'm finding that in this day and age, first of all, finding a quiet place <laughs> is one of the biggest challenges. If you can find a quiet place, if you can quiet yourself, it's really simple, but it involves a couple of techniques. I'd like you to try it right now. Bless you. The first thing is, to do this, you need to find a chair that you're not going to fall asleep in. So you need to sit in a chair like the one you're sitting in. You need to sit up straight, and you need to quiet yourself and be aware of your breathing, and take a prolonged period of silence just, just, just to center yourself and focus yourself. Now, eventually the focus is going to be a passage of Scripture. Okay? Now, you sit up straight, you breathe right from your stomach, you kind of center yourself, you relax yourself, and you know... 
for many of us, what happens after we do that is we fall asleep because we're tired. <laughs> and you know, if we do that, maybe that's a blessing from God. <laughs> but if you can, in anticipation, quiet yourself, center yourself with your breathing, take a piece of scripture, and read it. A good thing to do before you read it is maybe to say a simple prayer like, Lord, say something to me in this passage of Scripture. Open yourself up and say, hey, I really want to get something out of this. Use your, come up with your own prayer. I got a pretty lengthy one. Lord, if there's something in this passage of Scripture that I have not noticed before, may your grace magnify it. If there's something that I've noticed before and you want me to notice it again in a different way, may your grace make that possible. Lord, if there's something in my life, in my environment that's distracting me, may your grace minimize that so I can focus on this passage of Scripture. Focus what you are saying to me in this passage of Scripture. That's my prayer. And you take the passage of Scripture and you read it. And something is going to jump out at you. Might be a word, might be a phrase. So let's take what we've already read. So say we're doing this, and what jumps out at us is beginning. So you stay with that. Just stay with it. Meditation tells us that we just repeat that over and over again. For some reason, it's jumped out at you. Stay with it. Ride it like you ride a horse. Stay with it. In five minutes, you might find yourself thinking, oh, jeez, i got to do this tomorrow. <laughs> and you go, yeah. Go back to it. For some reason, it spoke to you. Stay with it. It'll lead you to all kind of funny places. Within five minutes, you might find yourself back in second grade. (laughs) It's okay. It's kind of where it's leading you, but... Quietly, use a mantra. Just keep repeating it. Meditation stays, says we stay with it. Contemplation is a different thing. Contemplation says, maybe you want to repeat it, reword it, to my beginning. Or beginning of something. Rework it. And kind of make it your own. Contemplation says we go within and we keep repeating it. But contemplation has a purpose. The purpose of contemplation is at the end of your silent prayer, you're like, wow, I think I need to do something or change something or look at something differently. Contemplation leads us to do something different. Leads us to some form of action. Meditation doesn't. Meditation is you just stay with it and it's just, hey, I'm meditating, I'm beginning and that's good enough for me. (laughs) The third is consideration. Consideration in the silent prayer encourages you to use your senses. Put yourself at the scene. Genesis could be a really fun thing to do this way. Pretend that you're watching God create. What's it look like? What's God look like? (laughs) What does this image speak to you? And use your senses to get involved in in, in active form of silent prayer. I'm just kind of giving you some real simple techniques maybe to try this as you pray with scripture for the rest of your life. 
But stay with what catches your attention and focus on it. Contemplation, maybe rework it. Use the silence to pull it inside you. Hold it. And then help that lead you to something or some kind of action. Meditation, just stay with it. Keep repeating it. Keep focusing on it. Consideration, put yourself at the scene. Use your senses to take in the experience. Obviously, that's much easier with stories that we get these kind of dramatic scenes from Scripture. All these are techniques, I really believe, to kind of use this as a blueprint for what we're going to do the next four weeks. And So next week we're going to focus on some of these uh, stories. Uh, Abraham, Samuel, uh, some other uh, really good stories. So i got some questions for you to think about for next week. Not quite as many as we had for, uh, for this week. Uh, David is another great one. And like I said, uh, these three very powerful women, Ruth, Judith, and Esther. And I'd like to encourage you to kind of spend some time reading their stories and make some notes. What's similar about those three women's stories? Maybe what's, what's different? And then one of my favorites from the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. There is a point in time for everything under the sun. And the author takes us through these couplets, a time to be born and a time to die. But what is really beautiful about that, the reason why I ask you to use that, perhaps after reflecting on the others, is this beautiful statement. About God's work. What advantage has the worker for their toil? I have considered the task which God has appointed for people to be busy about. That's that work I'm talking about. God has made everything appropriate to its time and has put the timeless into our hearts. Without people's ever discovering from beginning to end the work which God has done. And I recognize that there is nothing better than to be glad and do to well during life for everyone, moreover, to eat and drink and enjoy the fruit of their labor as a gift from God. I recognize that whatever God does will endure forever. So when we are about this work of God, our work and God's work, in this partnership that is so important that we form with God, We are working for things that are eternal, lasting, meaningful. In the Gospel of John, there's this very powerful connection with that. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, he goes to the other side of the the lake, and people are following him. (laughs) And he makes this observation. (laughs) These people aren't following me because they're believing what I'm doing. they got a free meal. I mean, come on. And in his dialogue with the disciples, he encourages and he says, work for things that are lasting. I guess that's another spin on that notion of work for us. God is calling each one of us to work on things that last forever. So, uh, we're a little over time, but I'd like to pass all these stories, these songs out, because I want to sing this together. Um, do we usually have questions, or what do we do at the end? Yes? I just pointed out a typo. Sure. Under the Moses, it's Exodus 2. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Other questions? Yes. How 
You know, um, I'm glad you're mentioning that because I think uh, one of the distinctions is in the Old Testament, it seems that people's call are more directly related to God and some form of command from God to go forth and do this. In the New Testament, it seems like Jesus gives people challenges and invitations through stories. (laughs) Um, Not all, but I think... Noah is a classic example, and so is Moses, and so is Abraham. It was a pretty individual call to these people. And they, their mission, part of their mission was to go forth and lead the people. Part of the, the New Testament mission seems like it's more this notion of discipleship, to follow, to be in part of this endeavor that follows. The, the Old Testament notion was more of the chosen people. The New Testament is more about discipleship. So you're... you're your uh, observation is really good. Um, I think it, it, in the Old Testament, God entrusts this message to one person more. In the New Testament, it's more about, okay, here's Jesus Christ that is gathering these followers, and it's about ultimately what we call the church and how the Holy Spirit then inspires people to go forth kind of in the name of the church and in the name of the community. In the Old Testament, it's more... It's more expressed through this notion of being chosen in the community of the chosen people that go off and do this. And Noah certainly is a pre- precursor. Noah is like the first one that that really happened to. So um, that's a good observation. Yes? Doesn't it have something to do with forming the people so that they can be church? Yes. They had to start someplace. Yes. And yes. People had to develop spiritually and yes. religiously. And in the New Testament, Jesus um, raises a lot of eyebrows because he engages people who are not, um, who are outcasts who are not necessarily in the circle. And so that's one of the downsides of somebody saying, well, we're chosen, you're not. Jesus says, okay, in a sense, all are chosen, or giving the possibility for all to be chosen. Uh, so there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, I think that's just, those are just kind of the hallmarks of how this has unfolded. And ultimately for us, it's, you know, in looking at our lives, how do we create? You know, what are we passionate about? Um, What kind of covenant has God, you know, uh, given to us? And how have we found favor? I think those were all part of the questions that I asked. And then the the New Testament, how, how has it become real in our lives? You know, sacramental. How is it experienced Eucharistically with, you know, this identification for what is real and this notion of, of Jesus Christ fulfilling this and it being lasting and being meaningful. Those are kind of the blueprints, I think, that we can all apply to how God is, is calling us. So, did you have a question? Well, I was just thinking, whenever we read scripture, should we expect to be called to do something? Or not always. We just read scripture. Sure. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But I think at, at some point in time, I guess my, my just, like I said, my conviction is that it can help us so much in our discernment process. We don't always have to be responding in some dramatic way to what God is calling us to do. But there certainly are times over and over and over again when we have to do that. So, yes? Covenant for land given to all the descendants of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So, the Gaza Strip people sitting in their rockets, 
are, in their view, legitimately claiming the land promised to them. The Israelis say, wait a minute, God gave it to us. Us. <laughs> the problem is they're saying your God did that that's not our God so I think the, the point of split is it God in himself the essence of God you know it's and unfortunately that's why so many wars have been fought in the name of humanity you know, or in the name of religion and God itself they give us this imperfect means of Supposedly attaining perfection, which we can't do. <laughs> but we can try. Yeah. That's where Psalm 63 comes in. Only in God will my soul be at rest. Um, Augustine reworked that to say, My heart is restless until it rests in God. Um, Just wanted to give you the words to this song and uh, maybe sing it yourself or we've gone over a little bit. So um, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I look forward to being with you next week. And thanks for... you got some questions on there and um, sing this song, review it, and um, as an example of how Micah can inspire us. And um, we'll see you next week. Thank you.